but Matthew chapter 22 is where we're going to be. If you're a guest, we're, we're glad that you're here. Um, and you should know that we have been going through the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and today's topic just happens to come in line with our study in the Gospel of Matthew. This is a political sermon um, because that's what Jesus talks about. Um, but, but stick with me uh, because this is, this is Jesus and I think there's, there's instruction for us um, in this sermon. So we'll be reading uh, Matthew 22 verses 15 through 22 in just a minute. Uh, but but, but to, to introduce this passage in this sermon as, as we look at the politics of the king, when it comes to the Christian life, it consists of many irreconcilable choices. So as Christians in the world, there are many choices that are irreconcilable. So for instance, love God or love money, right? You cannot do both, that, that's, that's clear. Or pursue a life of righteousness or pursue a life of sin. You can't do both. To do both is irre- irreconcilable. You can love God or you can hate your neighbor. You can't do both. Loving God and hating your neighbor are ir- irreconcilable. You can follow Christ and seek to live for him or you can seek to live for self or some other will. You can't do both. They're irreconcilable. And in many of these irreconcilable choices, the simple solution comes with recognizing that, that we have one Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And as we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, something we've continued to see over and over, week after week, is that the rule and authority of Jesus is absolute. He lacks no authority. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That is who this man is. And those who follow him, those who bear his name, live in light of their complete and total allegiance to him. And we've seen that throughout the gospel. Now this brings up an important question. If Jesus is Lord, how should those who follow him relate to other rulers and leaders who also claim the title of Lord in this world? If if Jesus is Lord, wouldn't it make sense for Christians to refuse allegiance to any other ruler or Lord. So in the case of first century Palestine, wouldn't it make sense, wouldn't allegiance to Jesus require refusal to obey Caesar, who was Lord, there in Rome? Wouldn't obedience to Caesar, this pagan Lord, be an idolatrous replacement of the Lord himself? Isn't the clear choice Obey God or obey Caesar. Obey God or pay taxes to Caesar. Isn't doing both impossible? Well, that's the issue that our passage addresses this morning. And I want to make very clear at the outset that in our passage, Jesus is going to assert that paying taxes to Caesar is not to tolerate a mortal sovereign in place of God. Instead, Jesus teaches that it is possible to pay one's due both to the emperor and to God. To be both a dutiful citizen and a loyal servant of God. That's what Jesus is gonna assert. So there's the the spoiler there at the beginning. Jesus is gonna assert that it's possible to pay taxes to Caesar and be faithful to God. What we'll see here in these verses is a principle that has characterized Christian citizenship throughout the history of the church. 
And it's this principle here from the the mouth of Jesus, which we also find in Mark's gospel, but it's this principle that Jesus establishes that the apostle Paul is gonna build upon in Romans chapter 13, and it's this principle that the apostle Peter is gonna build upon in 1 Peter chapter two. And so we're just gonna look at this principle of how God's people are to live in a world. And just to clarify, there are many specific questions that will not and cannot be addressed in this sermon. I'm not gonna talk about masks, okay? Let me just tell you that. Many of these questions of faithful living in the world as citizens require nuanced discussions about Christian political theory, discussions that should be had. It's important for us to recognize how do we live faithfully in this world, this context that we've been placed and I, I've got a handful of books that I'm happy to lend out. I've got plenty of time that I'd be happy to, to give to you for discussion as we seek to hash these things out. But addressing every issue isn't the aim of the sermon because the sermon is to make sense of the passage in Matthew's gospel. Why does Matthew record this? And, and we hope to do aim. We hope to do justice to Matthew's aim as we walk through this. And again, Jesus wants us to know it's possible to be subject to the emperor as ruler while at the same time honoring God as God. They're not irreconcilable choices in this context. So let's let's read the passage, then I will pray, and then we will work through the verses together. So Matthew chapter 22, beginning verse 15, and I'll read through verse 22. If you have the Pew Bible, it's page 828, and it just spills over into page 828. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and they plotted how to entangle him, that is Jesus, in his words. And they, that is the Pharisees, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true. We know that you teach the way of God truthfully and we know you don't care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Let let me pray for us before we look at these verses. Father, our aim is to follow Jesus as Lord as those of us who have turned from sin and death and put our faith in Christ. We've been united to him. We've been given new life and we want to live as his followers here in this time, in this place. And so I pray that we would heed the words, the counsel, the instruction of our Lord here. Give us wisdom and discernment to know how to live as citizens in this country, as faithful followers of Jesus. So help us, we need your help. Spirit, would you open our eyes to the wonders of your word. Incline our hearts to obey the testimonies here. Unite our hearts to fear your name as we encounter you through your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things, amen. Well, we've got three points here. 
the, the outline, and, and if you're taking notes, here's how we're going to work through this passage. We're going to have the setup or the background there, verses 15 and 16, that's going to set the stage. Then we'll see the question. That, that's the center point of this whole discussion. The question, should we, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question. We'll see what's behind that question. And then finally, we'll see the resolution, how Jesus addresses this question. And so we'll look at his answer and his response in verses 18 through 22. So let's start there with the setup, verses 15 through 16. So we're told here at the beginning that, that the Pharisees, they went and plotted. That, that's not a good word. That's not a good activity. They're plotting. They're scheming how to entangle Jesus in his words. And so if you're with us at the end of chapter 21 into the beginning of chapter 22, Jesus had been telling parables specifically addressed at the Pharisees. And these are not kind parables. These are parables saying that the Pharisees have rejected God's will, they've rejected God's messenger, and they're gonna be judged because of what they've done. So, so Jesus has not endeared himself to the Pharisees because of this. We also recognize that Matthew chapter 20, 21 and 22, and what's following, this is the middle of Holy Week. So this would have been Tuesday of the week that Jesus is crucified. So the tension has been building. And so the Pharisees, they're not gonna, they're not gonna put this off any longer. They're, they're, they're set on destroying Jesus and so here we find them plotting how to entangle him in his words. And so verse 16, they, the Pharisees, they sent their disciples to him. So they send their, 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 little, their, their little followers to do their dirty work. So they don't go themselves, but they send their, some of their disciples to Jesus. But notice it's not just the disciples of the Pharisees, it's along with another group, the Herodians, and so, so there's these two groups of people that are coalescing together to trap Jesus. Now, the Pharisees, we know the Pharisees. We, we've, we've been encountering these leaders throughout. And in fact, these next three, there's gonna be three sets of questions where the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And chapter 23 is gonna culminate with these woe to the Pharisees. Jesus is gonna continue to, to address and, and condemn these Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of the day, those who would claim to be experts in the law, but those who clearly miss the point of the law. We've seen that throughout. They miss it but they are the ones that the people would look to as God's law experts. And so, so they send their disciples to Jesus. But the, the second group is the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees would have all been Jewish. They're Jewish leaders. Now, these Jewish leaders, most of the Pharisees would have been anti-Roman Jewish people. Right? They, they would say, we follow the Lord. He is our only king. And the, the, the Roman rule over us is, it, it doesn't rub us the right way. We don't like that Caesar is over us. That would be the, the disposition of these Pharisees. But the Herodians, on the other hand, would have been also a group of Jewish people. But these were, by the, their name, clearly portrays this, they were in favor of Herod. So Herod the Great, and now his son, Herod Antipas, was in rule. And so the Herodians were all for the, the leadership of the Romans over the Jews in Jerusalem. They were, they were the law and order advocates of the day. They saw the rule of the Herods under this Roman oversight as Israel's best chance to survive. They were, they were happy to be ruled by Rome. Rome was the greatest nation in the world. So they had no problem with being ruled by Rome. And in fact, they would, they would see Jesus as a revolutionary fanatic. Which is why these Herodians, they, they combine forces with the Pharisees three occasions, all with the Pharisees in an attempt to silence Jesus. So, so the, common, the common theme, the, the purpose here with the Herodians and the Pharisees is to trap Jesus. There's these 
anti-Roman Jews and these pro-Roman Jews who don't agree on much of anything, but they come together because they want to see Jesus entangled and trapped. So that, that's, that's the group that's come together. And surely they've met and they said, here's our question. Here's what we're going to ask because this is a perfect question to trap him in. And one of us are going to get our way in terms of he's going to side with one of us, but we both are going to win because whatever he says, he's going to be silenced and his influence is going to be diminished. So so they go to him and they go to him with a question, but they don't start with a question, do they? That's not how they lead in. How do they lead in? Look what they say to them when they go. They say, teacher, term of respect, rabbi, we know that you are true. You are true. We know that you teach the way of God truthfully. You're a reliable source in in directing in the way of God. We know that. We believe that about you. And we know even more that you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not going to be swayed. And you're also not swayed not only by people's opinions, but you're not swayed by appearances. Which is simply to say, you don't look out and read a crowd and then change what you're saying. You're not swayed by appearances. You could say that, that you're unlike modern day politicians in some ways. You, you, don't, you don't just read the way that the wind is blowing and say, well, this is what I believe today. Well, in 10 years, I'm gonna believe something else. They're, they're telling Jesus, you, you don't, you're not swayed. You are committed to the truth and that's, that's what you say. Now we recognize these, these two groups coming together, this, this is just hypocritical flattery. They don't mean a word of this. They're buttering up Jesus knowing they they have in their back back pocket a question that's going to set a perfect trap for him. And they're making sure that he doesn't have an easy way out. They're saying, hey, you're going to tell the truth. We know that. But the irony is in in all this flattery that everything they say about, about Jesus is true. Isn't it? It's true. He is true. He doesn't care about anyone's opinion. He isn't swayed by appearances. He does truly teach the way of God. And so in this flattery, these Pharisees and Herodians, they end up making a profoundly true statement about Jesus' teaching and his character. They don't mean it, but it's true. He is everything they say he is. The tragic thing is that they don't believe a word of it. But, but that's the setup. They, they butter him up and they go to him with the question, which we get to verse 17, the second point, the question. So, so after these preliminary remarks, they ask the question, verse 17. Tell us then what you think. What's true, O great teacher? Is it lawful or right to pay taxes to Caesar? Or is it not right, lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? That's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or is it unlawful to pay taxes for Caesar? Paying taxes, that's the issue. So the entire interaction is is centered upon this question. This is what they believe to be the perfect trap for Jesus. Now, while it appears to us to be a perfect trap, or a, a pretty simple question on the surface, the reality is that this question gets to the heart of how God's people are to live in the world. And it gets to the heart of the, the dilemma at hand that the Jews in that time and place are dealing with. How should faithful Jews relate to Caesar? As we know, there were disagreements among the Jews, in, in, which is seen in just these two groups. I mean, there were Jews in Jerusalem who were happy with Roman taxes, because they loved having the strong government and the stability and the justice and and the things that came with this government. So they were happy to pay taxes. They they were happy to be the benefactors of the Pax Romana. 
So there are some Jews that, that didn't have a problem paying taxes. No matter how high it was, they would do it. But other Jews would say, we, we struggle to do this. We, we struggle paying taxes to Caesar because the fact that Caesar is in rule means we are in the promised land, promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're living there, but, but a foreign pagan ruler is over us in the promised land. He's in the place of Yahweh. How in the world are we going to legitimize his rule because we are under God alone? And so these people come to Jesus wanting to know what he has to say about a real hot-button issue, a political topic of the day. Does God's law permit or forbid us from paying taxes? And so there, there's division. In fact, this, this specific tax had been initiated in AD 6, so it's been, been, it had been around for a little bit of time, but when it was initiated... There was a well-known, Josephus refers to this, but a well-known revolt by a man from Galilee whose name was Judas the Galilean. And Judas the Galilean leads a a revolt because he says, we are not under season, we're not gonna pay this tax. Now, the Roman rule did not put up with that and quickly ended the revolt of Judas the Galilean but that's, that's what's going on here. There are two sides And there's disagreement among the Jews. And so what we see is that the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're not coming to Jesus really wanting to know the answer to the question. They don't don't really care. They've made up their minds. They know what they believe. What Jesus says isn't going to change their mind. They are asking the question because they want to get Jesus on the record. They want to entangle him in his words. That's their whole point. They don't care about the answer. They want to diminish his reputation, his influence. And best case scenario, if he takes the bait, they may may even be able to walk down the street to the Roman authorities and say, come arrest this man because he just told a bunch of us we don't have to pay taxes. And he would go the way of Judas the Galilean. He would just be another Galilean teacher who led a revolt against Rome and he could be dealt with. That's best case scenario, I think which helps us understand this trap. If, if he does say, yes, you need to pay, it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, well, then you have these loyal Jewish people, these loyalists who, who are following him, are longing for their Messiah, and they think they found him in Jesus, and now Jesus says, well, actually, you need to pay taxes. And they say, well, no, we didn't sign up for this. And so they say, this isn't the one, he's not the promised one. And he would lose influence among those he came to help. So to say yes is to anger the people and potentially lose credibility. And if he says no, as we said, he'd be no different than Judas the Galilean who would be leading a revolt. And so it's a trap. Is it lawful or not? Answer yes or no. And either answer is not a good answer in their minds because it would lead to a trap. So they were certain they'd figure out the perfect way to discredit Jesus. And if it were not Jesus, they probably would discredit the person they were after. But it's Jesus. And he's not going to take their bait. And so let's look at how he answers. Look there, verses 18 through 22, the resolution. So in this last section, we see the answer that Jesus gives. We see the wisdom of the divine Son of Man on display. And so he's going to answer, but before he answers, look at verse 18. Jesus, aware of their malice. Now, sometimes we see Jesus' omniscience on display. So being fully God, he, he has full knowledge. So sometimes it says Jesus knowing what they're thinking. And it's clear it is his divine knowledge that's aware. I don't think this requires divine knowledge to be aware of their malice here. I think he's quite clear without divine knowledge that these people are out to get him. 
But he is aware of their malice, and so he says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? That's his question to them. Why are you testing me? Why are you coming at me like this? You don't care about this. You're pretending to be interested in how God's people are to live, but you could not care less. You're hypocrites. He wants them to know that he knows. He knows they don't care. He knows their inquiry is insincere. He wants them to know that he knows what's going on in their hearts behind their question. He wants them to know, I think, I know that you think you have me trapped. I know you think that this question corners me, but you're nothing but hypocrites. And this isn't a test that I'm gonna fail. So they're not caring the slightest. This is the epitome of hypocrisy. They're pretending to be something they're not. They're wearing a mask of genuine concern while truly seeking only to trap him. And so he does answer. Look at verse 19. Show me the coin for the tax. Bring me this coin. And they brought him a denarius. Now some some commentators make a big deal and say, look, these hypocrites, they have the denarius right with them. Now some people say, well, no, no, they probably went outside the temple to to bring it. We don't know. What we know is Jesus says, hey, bring me, show me the coin that's in question. And so it's provided. He asks them to produce the coin, and they bring it to him. And in verse 20, he asks them a question. Looking at this coin, whose likeness and inscription is this? Look here at this coin you've just brought me that, that is the center of this text you're asking about. Whose likeness, whose image is on this, and whose inscription on the other side that have been in inscription? Whose is this? And they say Caesar's. This coin, this silver coin would have been a Roman denarius. This, this, we've seen this in some of the parables, a, a, a coin that was worth one day's labor. So this was a, the, the tax that was required. It was a denarius to pay. It was a yearly tax. And so they bring him the coin that would be used. And, and as he looks at it, there would have been an image, an outline, kind of like in, on our American coinage, there, there's a, a bust or an outline of someone, a profile of a president. So there, there would have been an, uh, an image of Tiberius Caesar. And on the other side, it would have said something like Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus himself, or the son of, uh, of Augustus. That would have been the inscription. And, and Jesus sees this coin, and he says, whose likeness is this? Whose inscription is this? And that is a very simple question, right? It's not a trick question. Whose is this? And they, they answer, it's Caesar's. That's the right answer. That, that's whose image and inscription it is. And this sets the stage for his response, his answer. Then he said to them, after their answer, therefore render, that word is render, could also be be translated give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, so the verb would carry over, give to God the things that are God's. And so they produce the coin. He says, "Whose, whose image is this? Whose inscription is this? They say Caesar's. He says, okay, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar." Right, the, the logic is simple. Whose coin is it? Whose picture is on it? Whose name is on it? Who does this coin belong to? I mean, I think a, a good example would be boys and girls. Uh, some of you, maybe you're on baseball teams or, or soccer teams. And when you go to your first practice, everyone has a glove or a ball or a water bottle. Right? And so when you do that, your coach probably says, hey, when you go home, everybody put your name on your stuff. Why, do they, why does your coach tell you that? It's so that when you're at practice and everything gets mixed up, you can know what's yours. Your, your name on it proves that it belongs to you. 
Now, if you're like, if you're like us, you have multiple kids, it's not first name, it's last name only because it's got to be used multiple times. But nevertheless, the, the point is the name shows ownership. You write your name on things that belong to you. And that's the point Jesus is making. Whose coin is this? Who does it belong to? You want to know, is it right to give to Caesar or not? Whose coin is this? It's Caesar's. So his answer, render to Caesar, give back to Caesar the things that belong to him. It's plain and simple. And so, so after this response, the Herodians and, and the Roman authorities will be happy to hear that this is not an insurrectionist. Give back to Caesar what belongs to him. Pay your tax. We, we just heard him say, render to Caesar. It's right to do this. Render to him. You ought to pay taxes to Caesar, which is ironic that in, in Luke 23, as Jesus is brought before Pilate, those that bring him, the religious leaders, they say, they bring charges, they accuse Jesus, and they say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which just shows the nature of the opposition that Jesus faces as he goes through. They say the exact thing, opposite of what he says here. He says, yeah, give to Caesar what Caesar's, and they go and say, look, he, uh, he charged us not to pay taxes. Nevertheless, he says, render to Caesar, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So, so the Herodians and the Romans are happy, and so the, the Pharisees think, great, now we've got him. We've got him right where we want him, but that's not where he ends his answer, is it? It doesn't end with what you give to Caesar. He continues, he says, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the thing that are God's. Give to God the things that are God's. Now, notice what Jesus is doing. Now, the original question was, do we pay taxes or not? Do we pay yes or no? But the underlying assumption, as we've seen, was that either, yes, we pay taxes to Caesar, which means we, we honor him necessarily in place of God, or no, we don't pay Caesar taxes because we only honor God, right? That's the assumption underneath. If you answer, if you answer yes... Then, then you are not worshiping God. But if you answer no, then you're a, a bad citizen. And Jesus responds by showing that the two authorities aren't as irreconcilable as the question assumes. Jesus is genuinely answering the question. He's not just trying to escape the question. He is genuinely answering the question and laying out the principle by which God's people are to live in the world. He isn't just skirting the issue. And so when Jesus says, give Caesar what is Caesar's and give God the things that are God's, he's implying that the worship of God is not, in this case, belittled, obstructed, or prohibited by the paying of taxes taxes to Caesar. So he says, do both. Give Caesar what he deserves and give God what he deserves. They're not incompatible. And so Jesus doesn't give either party the evidence that they so desired, which is why, verse 22, when they heard it, they marveled. They marveled. They, they couldn't believe that he had squirmed out of this. How in the world did he do that? And they, with nothing left to do, they left him. And they go away. They won't stay away for long. But this, this question failed. This political aimed question did not do what they wanted it to do. And so they leave him alone. Now they're going to come back in the, in the next couple of weeks. We'll see they come with him with more questions. But for now, he's confounded them and they leave him alone. And so it ends the, the passage, but, but as we seek to apply this, I just, there's three points of application. And again, I, I'm speaking in light of this context and what we can apply here. 
And it's going to be questions that, that I'm not going to address. And so I'm happy. Email me. Come by the church and talk to me. Uh, talk with Will or Robert. We'd be happy to talk with you about, about these things. But here's just big picture principles to, to take from this. And I have these applications in the form of questions. So first question is, what belongs to Caesar? And he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. What belongs to God, give to God. So what belongs to Caesar? Now, in thinking through how Christians are to live in the world and recognizing the principle that being taught by Jesus here, we recognize that for God's people to live faithfully in the world, there are certain things that belong to Caesar. And Christians, God's people, are to give to Caesar, render to Caesar the things that he deserves. Now, when I say Caesar, that, that's the state, the, the figurehead or the ruling government, the king or the Caesar or the dictator or the president, the, the, the person that the, the government rests upon. Right, so, so what do we owe to Caesar? When I use Caesar, that's, that's what I mean. We obviously, we don't have Julius Caesar ruling over our nation, but that's what I mean when I say Caesar. So what does Caesar deserve? Well, the first thing for Christians to recognize, we owe Caesar honor. We owe Caesar honor. Christians, God's people, ought to be the best citizens. We owe it to Caesar. The default Christian attitude towards human government is that of submission and respect. We owe honor, respect, and obedience to the human governing authorities that we find over ourselves. That, that is the default for Christians in the world. Christians have that responsibility to their governors, government, to their authorities. Jesus was not a revolutionary in the sense that his aim was to overthrow the existing human government. He had every opportunity to do so if that was his aim. If our aim was to, to revolt and overthrow an unjust government, then Jesus would have had a perfect opportunity to lead the way. And if not Jesus, the apostle Paul would have had a perfect opportunity to say, revolt. But he doesn't. And Peter following doesn't. For Christians in the world, I mean, think about Jesus is gonna be crucified on a Roman cross. He is subject to the Roman authority because he's going to be killed by them. Did he have the ability to, to not be killed by them? Of, of course. I mean, Paul is in prison writing a lot of his letters. Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use this political process that I have. I'm appealing to Caesar, now I'm going to Rome. Right? He submits to the authority. He disagrees with them, but, but he submits to them. They didn't fight it. So for Christians in the world, our default position, I'm not saying there's never exceptions, but the default position is that we're not permitted to carry out acts of violence against human authorities. We're not permitted to withhold the paying of taxes because we don't like the person in power or don't agree with what the taxes are being used for. We owe the governing authorities certain things. And the reason, and here, here's the point, the reason for this honor and obedience and respect isn't because these governments are worthy in and of themselves of honor and respect. It's because God is the source behind every human institution and authority. God is the one who places governments in power. That, that's just true. I mean, listen, this, this is the Apostle Paul, Romans 13. He's writing under the Roman rule. And he writes to the church at Rome, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for, here's why, there is no authority except from God. 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Later on, verse 5 of Romans 13, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That's the Apostle Paul, Romans 13. I I understand as as you're hearing that, you've got all kinds of objections. And you're like, no, 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 what about this? What about this? I'm just telling you, this is what God's word says. And whatever, whatever political theory that you want to operate under, you have to deal with this. Because Paul is writing to Christians in Rome under pagan, godless emperors. They, They don't have representatives that they can go and lobby for. They can't go to a a poll and vote for change. The the law of the land is whatever whatever he says. And and some Christians are going to be thrown into a a coliseum where they're ripped to death because they say, we're going to obey as much as we can, but when when we choose to disobey, we know it's going to be because we're going to die. So so this is the, the context that Paul's writing this. But it's not just Paul. Listen to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, he's writing under probably the reign of Nero, who's one of the most anti-Christian rulers in the history of the world. And so he writes to Nero, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And so while Paul and Peter both would recognize there's an accountability, that there would be exceptions, their default is that Christians, as citizens in this world, ought to be upstanding citizens. This is because the consistent theme throughout the New Testament is that all human authority has been ordained by God. His ministers, his servants, sent by him, that's the language they use. And he's given his authority to these, these governments, to these ministers, the, the few things that are mentioned, to encourage good conduct, to praise those who are good, right, to, to punish those who do evil, right, to be a terror to those who do wrong, and to bear the sword. Right? That's what God, he, he equips and calls and, and empowers governments to do, to those things. And that's what their purpose is, their God-given purpose. And, and God grants them his authority for those purposes. And that's the limit of their authority, It should be clear, but the aim or the job of a state is never to enforce Christianity. That's never the aim of the state to Christianize a nation. There's a distinct authority of the state and there's a distinct authority of the church. The church is the, the means by which the gospel spreads, not the state. But the first application is that Christians do owe Caesar. Second application, what belongs to God? And this is the part of the answer from Jesus that, that clinches the deal for them, that, that eliminates their ability to, to, to say something in response. Because of, of what he says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what is God's, right? Think about the implication of his response. Right? He's established pictorially, visually, what belongs to Caesar. It's this little piece of silver, okay? That's Caesar's. Give it to him. Give it back to him. 
And that answer could have potentially stirred up a lot of commotion. But after saying that, give this little piece of silver to Caesar. He says, and give to God what belongs to God. And the question that we'll have to ask is, well, what does belong to God? And, and how would the Jews answer that question? What, what belongs to God? They were well-schooled in the scriptures, the Old Testament. What belongs to God? The, a better question may be, what does not belong to God? It's all his. And, and we're required to, to love him with all that we have. And so we owe him everything, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all that we are. This is the first and greatest commandment. And we worship him. That's what God deserves and so these Jews would, would know and believe that God was sovereign over all things. And there's nothing that falls outside of the realm of his ownership, which is why they couldn't say anything in response. Jesus refuses to give in to this false dichotomy between paying taxes and worshiping God. Instead, he posits a worldview in which the rule and authority of Caesar is subject to and in accordance with the rule and authority of God. And so his response to render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God the things that are God's puts the whole issue in a wider perspective. He, he zooms out. He says, what, what is the purpose of your life? Don't get caught up in these taxes. What are you here for? It's to worship God. And loyalty to him, you're, you're caught up on, on paying this, this silver tax, this one denarius tax. Loyalty to God, you don't have to revolt. Just pay the tax and, and honor God. Loyalty to God and political allegiance, even to a pagan state, are not incompatible, is the point that Jesus makes. And Jesus is not making this rigid division between the sacred and the secular, but rather a recognition that the secular finds its proper place within the overriding claim of the sacred. Do you see that? It's not as though, hey, here's the authority of the state, of the secular, and here's the authority of the sacred, and, and they never will pass. No, it's all sacred. It's all God's. He's the sovereign. He puts people in power. He, he disposes leaders. He is God, and, and under life in his world, he appoints leaders, and so the authority of them is under him, always. And so we owe him wholehearted worship and allegiance. And the third, third point, this isn't a question, but this is a, a statement, don't get confused. And, and here's where the rub goes. These things are true. And the default for Christians in the world is you do both. You love God and you honor the emperor. But there are times when the two cross and when that happens, we must not get confused. We need wisdom and discernment to know when that line's been crossed, but don't get confused. Normally, rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and rendering to God what is God's don't contradict each other. So that in this case, Jesus believes that. They're not in conflict. The men should pay Caesar and they could still worship God. But sometimes, sometimes the worship of God and submission to Caesar are in conflict. And in these cases, there ought not be any confusion regarding Christian allegiance. In cases where there is conflict, Christians ought always always obey God over government, always. There's always inherent in civil authority a tendency to reach beyond its appointed function. And that, that's just the nature of humanity. And so when you have a, a state government, the, the tendency is always to reach beyond its appointment, a tendency which leads to, to this self-transcendence, to where the, the state becomes God, replaces God. 
This is why there's Caesars walking around at this time declaring, I am the son of God, I'm divine. And when this is the case, Christians ought always to seek to make perfectly clear that divine honors belong to God alone. There are some things that will always belong to God. And so when a state says you must do something that God says not to do, or a state says you must not do something that God says to do, when that's the case, there's no question. Don't get confused. You obey God and you welcome whatever whatever consequence comes if it's going to the lions or to the stake. Right? There is no question. And scripture is filled with, with these examples. Think about the Hebrew midwives. They spared the young Hebrew children and God protected them, but they weren't gonna obey. They weren't gonna kill these Hebrew children like Pharaoh had said. Or Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Worship, and they say, we're not. We're not going to burn us up if you have to, but we're not gonna worship Nebuchadnezzar. They count the cost, they say, we're gonna obey God. We are being commanded to do something that violates our allegiance to God, so we're not gonna do it. Or Peter and the apostles, Acts 5. They, they arrest him, they bring him up and say, hey, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna do anything, we're just gonna tell him, stop preaching the name of Jesus. Do you remember what they say? That, whether it's right or not, you must decide, but we cannot stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. We're gonna go preach this gospel. So if you tell us not to, we're gonna take whatever consequence comes, and they're put in jail, and then they're, they're divinely rescued. But, but they, they say, we cannot disobey God and obey you, so we're, we're not going to be confused. As Christians, our allegiance, above all else, is to God and his commands, And so whether anyone or anything comes in the way of that, we must refuse to obey. So God has instituted structures of authority. And so so in the marriage, a husband has authority over the wife. But a wife must not obey her husband if he's telling her to sin. That authority does not extend into sin. Children, you are called to obey your parents. If your parents are telling you to sin, you must not obey them. You obey God. Employers have authority. If you are a worker, your, uh, your boss has authority over you and you should obey him as a good Christian. But if he tells you to fudge the numbers or, or to lie or do something, you must not do that. You can't claim obedience to authority as an excuse to sin. And so as Christians, these structures of obedience are ordained by God, but they are always subject to go astray. And when that happens, we obey God above all else. Now, I know, right, I know there's, there's, there's questions, maybe I've upset you, and I'm okay with that. I'm happy to hear from you, and I, and I wanna talk with you. I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty approachable person, um, and if you can't approach me, Will or Robert are approachable. Uh, but we are called to be faithful citizens, and the reality is we live in a time and a place where it's unique where the influence of Christianity in our nation and the influence of, of Judeo-Christian laws is, is significant and, and we have democracy. And, and so we live in a unique time and we have to be careful not to view Christian life in the world only in light of our experience because the reality is this. Throughout all of Christian history, Christians have lived under governments. Do you realize that? Every Christian that's been alive in this world has lived under some form of government. There have always been authorities over God's people. Some have been okay. Some have been pretty bad. Some have been really good. Some have been atrocious and terrible. There have always been good, bad, and a mix. 
And it's always gonna be different depending on the time and place you live, the location. There's no uniform Christian experience with governing authorities. Do you realize that? All over the world today, we could, we could call up thousands of Christians in thousand different places and their experience with government is all different. So there's no uniform experience. Not now, there never will be. The new heavens and new earth, there'll be uniform Christian experience under a government. Praise God, we long for that. But here's what I realized. Throughout every age, throughout every nation, throughout every Christian experience of God's people, there has been a constant. And that constant is that God has been with his people regardless. God's presence has never been removed from his people, regardless of the governing authorities. So in the worst case scenario, God's presence has not left his people. In the best case, God's presence has not left his people. No Christian, regardless of political setting, has ever been abandoned by God, ever. And that's, that's great news, isn't it? Imagine hearing that in, in Syria today, or in North Korea today, that God has not left you or forsaken you and never will. Christian, that's our hope here and now for us. There is a day coming when there will be only good, right, righteous government, and that's not gonna happen on this continent. Not because humans will eventually figure out this whole ruling thing and and act rightly, but because God himself will be our king. And we will be with him, we will be his people, we will be ruled rightly, and we will gladly live lives of submission under him then without question. And so our aim now is until that day comes to labor to live faithfully as good citizens. And may God give us grace and wisdom to do so because it's not easy. Let's pray and then we'll sing in in response.